my wife must be the smartest and best planner in the world because she's back with the children's ministry this morning. That's happened more than once, by the way. All right, guys, we're going to be dealing with You Ain't the Boss of Me, part two. We dealt with the guys a bit uh, last week, and today we'll kind of take a look at the, uh, the way the Lord uh, has Paul addressing the ladies and what their role is. And uh, it's kind of uh, strange because it seems like nobody knows what anybody's role is anymore because we can't define who a, what a woman is. I can't define what a man is. Men can get pregnant. I mean, we got all kinds of stuff floating around that's... I mean, I thought we learned that in plain old biology classes like a long, long, long time ago. But now it seems to be up for debate. Okay, so we're dealing with a woman's role, God's given role uh, for the woman. And if you're just here, ladies, if you're just here and you think, well, this hits hard, get the one from last week and you'll see what, what uh, the Lord is trying to say through this, what the Apostle Paul is trying to say through this in dealing with the men and their role also. All right, let's pray and begin. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. That Father... You allow us to have fun in church. You allow us to be real. In fact, you want us to be real. I believe the current term is authentic, but that seems a little made up to me. Lord, you want us to be real. You want us to be open. You want us to be honest. We know that marriage can be the most incredible thing in the world. Yes, it's got its Uh, issues and things we have to work through and work out but if all things work together for those who love you Lord and they work out for the good then we know even that is a uh, it's developmental it's it's meant to help us to see things we need to change and Father may we always be willing to change and not just set on changing the other person I know that in in my life, many, many, many times, when I've gone to you about maybe something with my wife, you've always said, well, what about you, John? So I just pray, Lord, as we go through these, we see your authority. We see your, uh, our ability to see you through all of the things. Father, you've given us some do's and don'ts through your word, but never to hurt us, always to be a blessing to us. We don't always follow those. We don't always follow those in the dating pattern. We don't always follow those in the marriage. But Father, I believe that any marriage can be redeemed if both husband and wife will really fall in love with you. Allow you to be the Lord of everything. So Lord, as we approach this again this morning, may you be honored. And we just thank you for the privilege that we have of reading your word and studying your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everyone said. Amen. Not, it wasn't everyone. And everyone said. Amen. <laughs> All right, makes me feel a little better. All right, guys. Last week, as I said, we spent some time dealing with the husband's role, the man's role, if you will. And as I said, a lot of times when you go through these sections of scriptures, um, I, I think that there is... it's left on too much of a human level instead of it going all the way to the top of what God really means in these chapters. I mean, he says what, Paul says what he means, but the point is, is that this all goes higher than just authority. It goes higher than just a husband and a wife. Just like children, at some point in time, if they begin to realize that God is in control, if they realize that God has given them the mother and the father that he's given to them, it's so much easier for them. Because instead of always blaming mom or dad for uh, raining on their parade, they might be able to see through that and see, well, maybe God has a reason why they feel this way. But so many times we don't consider that. We don't go all the way to the top to realize that maybe God has got a reason and a plan. Even as adults, have you ever, well, I should say, do you know that there have been times in your life where you wanted something? I mean, you just couldn't see why God would not want you to have this. And you pray and ask God for it and God says no. 
That's not easy for any of us. But if you've lived long enough in the Lord, you've realized that at least sometimes we look back on that and go, that's the reason he said no. Because you begin to see the end of it and you couldn't see it at the time, but there, you're able to look back now and say, I see God's hand all over it. That's why he kept me from doing those things. We need to remember that he's a good, good father. And that he loves us. You know, there's one thing when you get into places where you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going on. And that's a lot today, right? We, we don't know what's going on. You got to fall back on what you do know. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. His sins has, I mean, his uh, forgiveness at the cross has covered your sins. He's not a mean God. He's a loving God, a benevolent God. He's always looking for ways to be able to bless us. If you sort everything through that, then we can put our faith and trust in that God and know that no matter what's going on, no matter what it looks like, no matter what our heart sometimes even tells us, all of those other things are true. All of those other things will always be true. And then all of a sudden, we can look at things from a different lens. We took a look at that word head that was used before in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I, I would like you to try to get away from our social norms of what we think that means, and please understand that it means everybody has someone in authority over them. That's just the way God set up his godly order. But I want you to know who's at the top of that. Who's at the top of that? So many times we think it's our spouse that's impeding our progress or our happiness or our whatever. Or we think it's the boss that's standing in the way of our promotion or standing in... You know, we can go to chief counsel. We can go to the, to the main guy. We can go to the one that operates everything, right? We can go to him and plead our case. If God wants to change our spouse, he can do that because you know what? You can't. So many times people get married and think, well, I'm going to get married and I'm going to change him. No, you're not. Or she says, or he says, I'm going to change her. You're not, you're not going to do that. If it's going to change, it's going to change because God gives that person the ability to be able to change, opens their eyes and be able, and they're able to see something that is a flaw maybe in their, in their uh, personality. And they see it. God reveals that to them and they go, you know what? I've been being a jerk. Or I've been unfair. Or I'm applying rules to my family or to my spouse that I don't apply to myself. Happens a lot. But when we take it to the Lord, the Lord always works on us and he changes us. He changes our heart. And we can put all of that on the altar and let it go. Or at least we should be able to put all that on the altar. It doesn't mean that it's easy. I don't want to stand up here and tell you that it's easy. It's not easy. It's probably one of the most sacrificial things you'll ever do. And you moms and you dads, you know what that's like. You're laying down your life on a continual basis for your children. And what happens when they hit sometimes teenage years? They throw you a party and call you blessed every morning when you wake up? <laughs> Not the case. They're trying to learn how to be adults. And yet, they don't have the experience that comes with time and it comes with age. But you see, we've decided to have them when we've decided that they bring us joy. And then as they start hitting those teenage years, they're trying to figure out how to be a man, how to be a woman. They want independence. Because, let's face it, we all knew all there was to know when we hit about 16, 17 years old. I mean, that's, that's just part of, the, part of the process. And it takes a few years to gain a little wisdom and realize maybe we don't have all the answers. And in a lot of cases, not in every case, but in, in most cases, those children, if you've raised them right, they start in their 20s, maybe even earlier for some, they start realizing that maybe you weren't quite as much of a bonehead as they might have thought you were growing up. And that relationship 
many times will return. And it grows over time. Okay, so that head, if you will, it's, it's dealing with the spiritual more than it is even the practical. It's practical, yes, but it's dealing with the spiritual. It's not a boss. That's why I put the title, You're Not the Boss of Me, right? Because we're not bosses. We talked last week about we love coaches, but we hate bosses. You have a boss that just walks in and says, you get this done. I want this done now. It's like you're, when he walks out, you don't have good thoughts. But if he comes in and he says, man, you've been doing an awesome job. Would, could, you, could you get this done before quitting time today? A whole different, whole different attitude, a whole different way of going about it. All right, so it's dealing with authority. It's dealing with the government of God, if you will. And I'm just going to give a couple of um, recaps, if you will. Out of Mark 10, 42, it says, But Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it should not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, you should be their servant. You shall be, excuse me, whoever wants to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Now, what's he doing? He's upside, he's doing an upside down pyramid. Our structure is you're out here, you work at fast food restaurants, you're right out of high school, maybe still going to college, and you're kind of on the bottom tier, right? You finish your college, you get your degree, you kind of move up that tier a little bit. And you keep working, pretty soon you become the CEO. Pretty soon you become Elon Musk, right? You're at the top, the richest man in the world. That's the way it works. In the upside down pyramid, Jesus works at just the opposite. The more we learn, the more we grow, the more we become like Jesus, the more effective we are for the reason we were born. We are more efficient at what we were created to do. And you know, it might come as a surprise to a lot of us, but we really weren't created to get rich. If you're rich, don't be offended. That's awesome. Please come and stay. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But that's not why he created us. He didn't really even create us to make a ton of money. He really didn't create us to be the most popular kid in school. He created us to give him praise and honor and glory. So what he's trying to say here is the more we learn that process, the more we learn to have a sacrificial love in our life, the more effective we are at why we were created in the first place. So Paul has already established that men should be godly examples to their wife by showing their authority based on their relationship with Jesus Christ. Force and power rarely gets a surrendered heart. It gets obedience. You put enough power and pressure on people, you can get obedience. We've seen that in the last year, haven't we? A couple years. But that's not really a a heart. That's just doing what you have to do because the boss tells you you're supposed to do it. We don't want our families to be submitted to any of us, husband or wife, because they're scared to death of us. Now, a little respect, that's a different thing. But not because they're terrified of us. But because they see something in us that says, my dad's following the Lord. My mom is following the Lord. I know that they love Jesus. And I know they're not perfect, but I know that they're following the Lord. So we dealt with the guys a lot. Now the ladies are going to kind of come into attention here. And it's the wives in the church in Corinth because this is the book to the Corinthians. And as I've said before, they were just making a mess out of church. 
They had uh, come to church. Some of them had gotten saved because Paul had been there, shared the Lord with them. But there was all kinds of things going on that were out of order. And so somebody writes to Paul and says, man, you need to help us out here because it's kind of a mess. And he's been dealing with those things in Corinth. So that's where we pick up our study. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5 and 6. But every woman who prays or prophesies with let her also be shorn but if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved let her be covered now although the custom of a woman's head being shaved um, does not have the same social implication today right things have changed but it has spiritual lessons in it. That's what we want to talk about. One of the things that Calvary Chapel did that was awesome is they kind of broke down a lot of those barriers, at least from the 60s and 70s. Long hair, short hair, coats and ties. Any of you guys remember some of those early songs coming out of Love Song and Costa Mesa? Everybody came in. And yes, there was a, a large outreach to the hippies. And you know, back then, you got to understand, people didn't want to sit next to a dirty hippie. They were anti-government, they were anti-this, they were anti-guns, they were anti-everything. They were pretty much against everything. A lot of them lived in communes. People didn't want to sit next to a, a long-haired hippie. And you guys have heard this story, I'm sure. Sometimes they would come in and everybody wore sandals back then, right? Their feet would be dirty. And you know the little communion holes that are in the back of some churches? Tables, chairs, what am I looking for? The benches, the, the pews, yeah. They stink, huh? Anyway, the pews, right? They'd have the little communion trays in the back, the little holes. <laughs> well, the guys and gals would take off their shoes and sometimes put their feet and their toes up through those holes. <laughs> Is it good? Is it No, but it's not life and death, right? So the story has it that some of the people on the board told Pastor Chuck, we need to tell these guys they're not welcome. You know, they can't come in here like that. They can't do this. And, uh, you know, they're soiling the carpet. The carpet's getting dirty. And Pastor Chuck's reply was, then tear out the carpet. Tear out the carpet. They need to be here. They need to be shown love. And they need to hear about Jesus. So they began to break down some of those social norms. Now, those are good if they lead to Jesus. If they're just woke junk that does nothing... They're not good. In other words, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You always keep Jesus first. If you're going to change something, change something in the word of God. No, let me back up. Don't change anything in the word of God, but maybe change the way you do it a little bit. But don't change the basic truth. In some parts of the East, today women are, who are spoken for, they still wear a veil, excuse me. Women that are available go without the veil. Many of the prostitutes in Corinth shaved their heads to indicate that they were under no authority. No authority. Well, except Satan's. But they shaved them as a sign to say, I have no husband. They advertised their freedom and their availability by that symbolic gesture, if you will. Now, I don't know if you can see the comparison, but it's a pretty, pretty heavy comparison that Paul is making between being disrespectful and being a temple prostitute. Throughout the word of God, when we are not worshiping God and we're worshiping something else, he calls us adulterers. Right? You, you guys have seen that over and over and over in the word of God. When we're loving anything more than we love Jesus Christ. 
So what he's saying there in Corinth, because what was happening is they were getting together and in a lot of, they started out where the men and women were separated, right? So there would be shouting back and forth between the women and the men. Maybe a lot like this little video we had here. But anyway, they would be going back and forth at each other. And when that's going on, nobody can hear anything. There's not really um, anything discernible that is going on. So what they're saying, what is being said here is they might as well advertise they're free, that they are free because they're disrespecting their husbands. Now let me say this, disrespecting or disrespect flows both ways. It's not just wives who can disrespect their husbands, but husbands can disrespect their wives. There has to be a bond between a husband and a wife that there's certain things you don't say. Who can hurt you the most? A friend or a foe? A friend. Why? Because the friend knows everything about you. They know about all your weaknesses. They know about all your issues. They know about everything. So if they want to dig in at you, they can dig in at you and they can hurt you more than somebody who doesn't know you. So there has to be this covenant between a husband and a wife that's following Jesus that says, we won't cross that line. Now, I also believe that husbands and wives have to be able to joke with each other. They have to be able to have a sense of humor and not take everything serious. But when you're around couples and you're around other people, you have to be careful about what you say. It may be funny, but it also may pierce the other person's heart. So, basically, in a nutshell, what they're saying is they were just dishonoring their husbands there. Verse 13 through 16. Judge among yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, this is important. But if anyone seems to be contentious, if anyone disagrees with me, here it is. We have no such custom. We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay, that's important. You need to hold on to that. Customs are going to change. Times are going to change. So here we go. Now women wear short hair. Men wear long hair. Women wear slacks and ties and men wear earrings. Women wear baggy pants and guys wear those little tight girl jeans. (laughs) While they still can or if they still can. But the point is this. It's not a matter of church doctrine. Nobody should school somebody else because they choose a certain thing that has nothing to do with their spirituality. Now, if it's against the word, if it's against God, that's another issue. But a lot of times we get hung up on things that just really don't matter. We put hoops up. You see, that's what religion does. The difference between a religion and a relationship, I'm sure you guys have heard this many, many times. Religion sets up hoops. Now, any of you, I've asked this before, but do any of you, did any of you guys run hurdles? Did you do the hurdles in, in high school or whatever? I couldn't do hurdles because I couldn't jump that high. <laughs> I couldn't do them. I couldn't, I couldn't, I was, if I went out and tried to do hurdles, I'd be on the ground the first hurdle, right? Because I just, uh, white men can't jump. I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't get there. My point is, in life, if you're going to set up a bunch of religious hurdles, many of us are not going to be able to clear them. When Jesus came, he tried to get rid of those. He tried to make a, stra- a straight path between our sins and his cross. He tried to remove those things that would prevent us from coming to know him. But the religious set up those 
hurdles because it makes them look more spiritual than you. We can go all the way back to the priesthood which started out to be a good thing but then it turned into something it was never supposed to be to where you have to go confess and you've got to get forgiveness from this guy who's a sinner himself. That's not what God intended. He did not intend for that to be. We go straight to Jesus. It's like when they cried for a king, right? And they ended up getting Saul. Bad choice. We cried for a president and we, well, never mind. We won't go there. My point is this. God has always wanted us to go straight to him. Unencumbered. When you find yourself being religious, it's going to hurt your relationship with the Lord. And it's probably going to set you in a place where you become very judgmental of other people. I've shared with you guys before, I could not forgive my dad. I hated my dad because of the alcoholism in the family and what it had done to our family. But I remember, I don't remember where I was. I don't remember if I heard a a teaching on the radio or if I was in church. I think I was in church and I heard uh, a scripture about us forgiving. And they said, "Who, who are we? Scripture says, who are we to not forgive someone? When we are sinners and we're saved for everything once we come to know Jesus Christ. So we're forgiven everything when we give our life to Jesus Christ, but we turn around and sit as judge and jury on somebody that's hurt us in the past. It's like I realized I couldn't do that anymore. That was the word of God telling me, you've got to forgive your dad. It was the first time I could ever remember calling him dad. We had a lot of other names for him, but I can't use those anymore. Because I'm saved. But it wasn't as bad as it sounds. So we would call him Pappy or the old man or we'd call him something. But we would never give him the honor of saying dad. Because he really wasn't much of a dad to any of us. Not a matter of church doctrine. So I encourage you to be able to forgive. Because we've all been hurt. We will all be hurt. As long as we live in this world. But you remain a victim if you don't forgive. That'll be with you forever as long as you don't forgive. But when you finally forgive, genuinely ask God to give you the forgiveness and you forgive. You're free. You're absolutely free in the Lord. So, Paul's saying that it all has to do with head, the authority, the government, making Jesus our all in all. And we've already talked about the disrespect that was going on there in Corinth. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 27, if you would turn there, or they'll put it up on the screen, I'm sure. It says, submitting to yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now a lot of times you guys will hear this quoted when dealing with marriage. This will be quoted. But it always starts in verse 22. Wives. That's not where it starts. That's not where it starts. Go back up to 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's where it starts. A couple starting off by saying, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to do what the Lord wants us to do. We're going to follow God's guidelines in life. That's our commitment to each other. So a husband might think it's humiliating or underneath him or whatever it is to submit to his wife. It's not. It is the greatest thing a husband can do. Why do I say that? Because of the example of Jesus. He submitted to the authorities. He laid down his life for his bride. That's where it starts. And the wife submitting to her husband. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Now that's not the fear that we have today that we most commonly associate it with. That's a reverential fear, a respect. I think that respect goes all the way up to Jesus. We do it because that's what God wants us to do. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. I always have to pause here and I have to point out, it says, submit to your own husbands. Why is that so hard? Ladies, you often go to work and submit to somebody else's husband. Right? I mean, a lot of you ladies work, you work careers, you work, your jo- you work jobs. And there's men that work there that have authority over you. And 
it's so much easier to submit to them sometimes than it is to come home and be equally submissive to the husband. You know why? Because you know all about him. You know every little thing that's going to make him upset. You also know all of his flaws. You know all of his weaknesses. You don't know the other guy's weaknesses. Or at least you better not. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to who? Now what that does is it takes it up to a a vertical level. If you do it like this, well he's not so fill in the blanks. Well, I've seen him, blah, 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 blah. You know, if you do it on a horizontal level, if we compare each other, we fall so short. Nobody would want to submit to anyone because we're all human. But if we take it all the way up in the fear of the Lord, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. In other words, God, I'm in this. I made a choice to be in this. You knew, even though... Maybe I, maybe I didn't pray about it as much as I should have. I'm in it now. I'm committed to this. So God, show me what I need to do. Help me to know how to be the wife I need to be. Husbands, God, help me to know how to be the husband I need to be. Most of us didn't have a clue. Many of us still don't know. We still don't have a clue. But most of us didn't have a godly example around, or many of us didn't have a godly example to even know what a husband was or how he was supposed to be able to treat his wife, what that meant, and the chain of command all the way up to God, why it's godly, why God has given us this. And then it says, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, there's a couple words there that, ladies, I I think it's going to be hard. Then it says, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Please, please, don't think that's just for wives. Yes, it says it here, but go back to 22. Excuse me, verse 21. Go back to 21. That's the covering for all of this. Husbands and wife should both be subject to each other. I think it's a, a bad, a very bad thing. It is a mistake when husbands make decisions independent of their wives. I equally think it's bad when wives make decisions independent of their husbands. Now, I'm not talking about every little thing. You've already worked that out. A good marriage is a, a system of a million little contracts. I'll do this, you do this. I'll take care of these things, you take care of those things. You don't have them written down, but, but it's in your, your agreement. This is just how you operate. But husband should also, if he doesn't check with his wife about a decision, he's likely going to make the wrong decision. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you're not perfect, you're subject to make wrong decisions. If you're a human being, you will make the best decision you can by whatever data you have collected to prove your point. But what about data that you didn't collect? What about other data? What about other things that you don't know because it's just not quite in you? Your decision may not always be right. It is brilliant. It is brilliant the way God put it together because he did make us different. My wife sees things I can't see. She feels things that I don't feel. She senses things that I don't sense. And it works the other way, too. So why would you go into, if you were a president of a company or a corporation, why would you go in as a lone ranger and make a decision without getting good godly counsel? Wouldn't that be foolish? We all have our blind sides. 
Have you ever had somebody in a meeting just say, well, have you thought about this? And you're going, no, I didn't even think about that. I've been in situations, and I'm sure all of you have, to where you're maybe in a social setting, a social situation, and when you walk out, you think, hey, that went great, and your wife went, no, you shouldn't have said this. You shouldn't have said it that way. And you can argue that point all you want, but she's probably picked up something you didn't pick up. So there's this mutual honor and respect. You see, what, what, really, what really becomes troublesome in a marriage is we get married to someone and we want them to think like we think. We want them to act like we act. We want them to make the decisions the way we make decisions. And the world is not big enough for two of you. The world doesn't need two John Browns. The world don't need two of any of us. That's where the trouble comes in. My wife and I, after all these years of marriage, will usually go two different ways to get to the same place. You ever thought about that? Why are you going that way? I'm sure you haven't, right? Why are you going that way? Why are you driving 55? It only says 50. You should have made a right back there, not a left. Who cares? As long as you get there. And yet we spend so much time trying to make the other person into a clone of us instead of putting extreme value in the fact that they don't. That makes us a better individual. It makes us a a more rounded individual because we have another, another human being that God's working in and through to be able to give us more information, more data to be able to make the right decision. The church is subject, subject to Jesus, right? Do we, do we, we don't argue with that, do we? Do we have a problem that the church is subject to Jesus? That the church is under his authority? I don't, I don't think we do. But did he, you know, he's strolling along looking for a mate, right? And all of a sudden he sees this beautiful church and goes, I want her. No. Look at our lives before Jesus gave us life. Many of them were filthy. A lot of our vocabulary was filthy. Our thought life. In other words, the church wasn't even the church until Jesus gave his life for the church. For us, we look at all the wrong things. And I'm not saying that having some decent looks is not a good thing. I think that's a good thing. You don't want to be married to Mr. Ugly all your life. Now, come on, guys, I'm joking. Right? <laughs> I think that's a good thing, but that's going to fade. That's going to fade. For all of you guys, now I'm I'm scaring the teenagers and the young girls and the young guys that are all looking so good, but you're going to look like me one day. (laughs) All that beautiful hair that you've got, it's going to be gone. Well, not some of the guys, I don't know what what they do, but they got hair all the way through. But it, it's going to fade, guys. That's, that's going to fade. But what's inside of that individual will always be there. That heart, that love, that compassion. Okay, so it says, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church. And what did he do? Tell her what to do? Oh, no, he was a coach. He's given some instructions, but it says here that he gave himself to her. What a, what a flop, right? For guys who think that the wives need to give themselves to them, he's saying, husbands, give yourself to your wife. Be a one-woman man. I love you and only you. I'm going to be a jerk sometimes. 
I may look somewhere where I shouldn't look, but I am a one-woman man. I will love you all of my life. That's what Jesus did. He didn't look at a perfect church. He looked at a bunch of sinners and made the church, purified them. In fact, we'll see it here. It says that he might cleanse her or cleanse and sanctify her with the washing of the water by what? By the word of God. That's the washing that comes with us too when we finally dedicate ourselves, dedicate ourselves to the word of God and try to find out what a godly man is or what a godly woman is. That's that washing that takes place. And then it says, and then he presented her to himself as a glorious church, well, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should become holy and without blemish. Why do we pick people apart and pick up their blemishes? None of us are perfect. If people look close enough, they're going to find a pimple or a blackhead or something, Right? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? We shouldn't be looking at our spouse trying to pick them apart. We should be looking at our spouse and trying to build them up. You're still the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And you will be. I'll always feel that way all my life. Now somebody else might look at that and go, man, you guys are like 90 and you ain't beautiful anymore. Neither one of you. (laughs) That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter if you're really in love. But how many of us guys tell our wives that? On a semi-regular basis. How many of us just buying flowers for no reason? No holiday, no nothing. How many of us tell them, I appreciate everything that you do around here to keep this house together? keep this home together I appreciate all that you do for me let's reverse it how many wives tell that to their husbands on a semi-regular basis making them feel like they're appreciated that's not a bad thing that's a good thing in a marriage for a husband to feel appreciated and respected for a wife to feel appreciated and respected they were taking all of this ungodly stuff into even to uh, communion look at verse 7 through 21 now in giving these instructions I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse what a testimony for first of all when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you and I in part believe it for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of everyone else and one is hungry and the other is drunk. <laughs> it's a, there's, communion has become a party for these guys. Instead of there being a, a sacredness to it, Often at this time, the love feast was celebrated at church and then communion was taken also. So eat, fellowship. Ah, We still do that as Christians, don't we? We still love to eat, (laughs) get together for potlucks. Paul says, I can't praise you on this one because you're wrong. He says there's divisions. What is a division? It's something that divides and separates. It's a disagreement or disunity. Divisions. Second, there must also be factions. What's a faction? The uh, Greek word for factions is the word is also used for heresies. Heresies. Lies. Gossip if you will. So basically, it's the idea of choosing up sides and dividing over a difference of opinion. Guys, that's not supposed to happen in church. It's not supposed to happen in the life of a Christian. You remember that they were trying to choose between Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and he's saying, guys, 
None of those guys matter. Jesus is the one that matters. And here you are, you're getting together, you're, you're, you're factioning, you're picking people to sit by, and you, you don't want to sit by the other people, and you got all this junk going on that's not godly in any way, shape, or form. Let it go. They were even getting drunk at communion. He says, do whatever you're going to do. Do it at home. Don't do it at the church. Even doing it at home is probably not a great idea. But he's saying, this, that's not what communion is all about. That's not the Lord's Supper at all. Now, sometimes Pastor Dan and I hear things, right? And we hear people going, well, why are they doing that? And how come they're doing this? And how, why, is, why is the church? Just come and ask us. That's the proper Authority. That's the proper chain of command. I know that when people get together over lunch, they like to talk, but just, just that can be divisionary. That can hurt people. Just, we're more than happy. Any of the board guys, you can just ask. You can come and say, well, why are you guys doing this? And we'll do our best to try to explain what is going on and what's happening rather than having the stuff go on. Because what ends up happening, you might say, well, it's just innocent. Well, no, it's not. Because you get somebody who's brand new in the Lord and they overhear that. They're going, but I love my church. But I love what I'm hearing. I love the word being taught. And all of a sudden now there's just like this wedge driven in the middle. That's from Satan. That's not from Jesus. Jesus is a peacemaker. Okay, he says in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the word, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was uh, betrayed, he took the bread. Now, we're not taking communion this morning, but we're going to go over what he is saying here. He's basically saying, Jesus is what matters. Why do we take communion? Well, it's just part of the service. If you take communion and it's just because it's part of the service, don't take it. That's just a religious hoop. You're just taking, you jump in a hoop that you think is a religious thing you need to do because it's the right thing to do. If you don't understand what communion is, you shouldn't take it. Because taking it is not going to make you any better. God's not going to look at the heart that's devoid of him and say, oh, they took communion this morning. The gold star on that one got to understand that taking communion, we proclaim God's death. We look at the cross. Taking communion is looking at the cross and seeing an innocent Savior being beaten to death, being stabbed, taking upon him my sins, your sins, and him looking down and saying, Father, forgive them. That's communion. That's communion, and that's why we take it. We're proclaiming that the powers of darkness has no power over us anymore. We're proclaiming that the cross put those sins in their place, that they put Satan in his place, and we're proclaiming that our lives are dedicated to God. What kind of sermon does our life represent you meet somebody in the grocery store you meet somebody at McDonald's you meet somebody wherever would there be even a few indicators that maybe you were saved just a few you know you can do acts of kindness for people by a smile it's so strange you go by people and you see them and you want to you want to smile at them and say you know have a good day or whatever and they're just like and walk past like you're going to jump out at them or something the only one I do that to is Regis I try to scare him on a, re- on a day to day weekly basis pride and rebellion are horrible sins They caused Lucifer to fall. 
They continue to destroy us, men and women. And when allowed in the church, they destroy all that is godly. We need to know and understand that we don't need to preserve people. That's God's job. But we need to preserve His church. We need to preserve His testimony. We need to preserve what He accomplished at the cross. So it's, it's not about us again. It's about Jesus Christ. And it's not even so much about what we can do for Christ. It's about what He's already done for us at the cross. That's where that humble uh, repentance and heartbreak and tears of joy come in because you're going, God, I was a mess without you. And nobody, nobody that I've ever known loves me the way you love me. Nobody understands me the way you understand me. Stand me. Stand, you understand me. Nobody would forgive me the way you have forgiven me. That's enough to bring you to tears. Okay. Pride, rebellion, we're all in the church and that's what Paul is trying to deal with. They were being allowed to destroy the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, and it was messing everyone. So I'm going to close right now. We're going to pray, but I just want to say this. We are not perfect. We're flawed human beings. Now I know that might... Uh, offend someone I don't mean it that way but scripture tells us we were born into sin but we have a perfect God there's nothing that you've done that God cannot forgive but you have to let him Sometimes we beat ourselves up for years and years and years over something that maybe we've done or something we did wrong. I think it's good to feel that pinch, but you have to let it go. It's good to feel remorse, but God's provided a way to be cleansed from that, to be forgiven from that. So today's a new day. Today's an opportunity to start all over in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, just put it all down. Give it away. And if you go, well, I just can't, then ask God to give you the ability to do it. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, this is going to be near impossible. Because that kind of love and forgiveness, it's not in our nature. So I invite you to give your heart to the Lord.